Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Wollerton, Monticello's webmaster. These days, it's all written down, and there are people whose sole job is to help their bosses and colleagues navigate its niceties and hazards. I'm talking about diplomatic protocol. As the United States representative at the court of Louis XVI and a visitor to the court of St. James for an audience with his former sovereign, King George III, Jefferson was familiar with the trappings of protocol in European monarchies. But what about at home? Should a Republican government promote new protocol more in keeping with its principles? That was Jefferson's question in 1801 when he became president. In an excerpt from a recent talk, Monticello research historian Gay Wilson relates how Jefferson once tested the limits of protocol and describes some of the effects it had on diplomatic relations at home and abroad. And so when Jefferson then came into the presidency in 1800, uh, well, he was elected in 1800, he was inaugurated in March of 1801, he definitely began to create, I think, a style that would in his eyes, or maybe in his views, uh, secure a little bit more of the Republican uh, attributes of the government. So what did he do? Well, one of the first things is inauguration. Um, he walked to the inauguration, according to newspaper accounts. Unfortunately, they don't give us much detail, but they say he was dressed as a plain citizen. He then did away with those that lavish entertaining, the formal levees that had been held by Washington and even also during the Adams administration. Instead of this, he instituted small dinner parties. And his um, dressing as a plain citizen, one admirer described as Republican simplicity. But this then was ridiculed by many of the Federalists, and one Federalist senator, this was William Plumer of New Hampshire, uh, that he, following a meeting with the president, he noted that he was wearing, he said, a threadbare coat, ragged slippers with the toes out, hair cropped and disheveled. Now, the opposition believed that this careless toilet and unceremonious manners to be a mere affectation assumed to win popularity. Well, a close friend and supporter, and this was Margaret Bayard Smith, and many of you are familiar with her writings, she claimed that, well, if his dress was plain, unstudied, and sometimes old-fashioned in its form, it was always of the finest materials, and that in his personal habits, he was fastidiously neat. So here we have two very um, opposing descriptions of how Jefferson appeared and presented himself then in the office of president. Well, now this attempt at Republican simplicity extended to his interaction with the diplomatic corps as well. His initial meeting with the new British minister, Anthony Mary, uh, gained notoriety in the Federalist press. Mary arrived in Washington in late November of 1803 he, was, he promptly uh, went through the proper channels in making an appointment through the Secretary of State to present his credentials to the President. He arrived then at the appointed time, and uh, the description is that he was dressed in full diplomatic regalia, which was a deep blue coat with black velvet trim and gold braid, white knee breeches, white silk stockings, ornate buckle shoes, a plumed hat, and of course he carried a dress sword, the gentleman's dress sword. 
Well, now, the accounts of what Jefferson was wearing have varied widely with the retelling of the story. Uh, Mary reported his reception uh, with the president uh, to his minister of foreign affairs in London, that was Lord Hawkesbury, and he repeated then the story to anyone else in Washington who would listen, apparently, and these were mostly the Federalists. The political opposition delighted in the Mary affair. They, I tend to feel that the accounts began to be somewhat embellished because a Federalist congressman from Massachusetts, whose name was Samuel Taggart, he wrote of the affair in a letter. This was six weeks at, later. He had Jefferson dressed in a dressing gown and slippers and a nightcap. And then he went on to say, well, probably not the nightcap. Uh, but he did then say that his, the British minister was not pleased with his democratic majesty. Then two years later, Mary is still retelling the story uh, to yet another Federalist congressman. This was Josiah Quincy, also of Massachusetts. And in this uh, retelling, he said that the president's slippers were down at the heels and that his breeches, coat, and linen showed utter slovenliness and indifference to appearances. And he remarked upon a state of negligence actually studied. It's those down-the-hill slippers that seem to remain with the story, no matter when it was being retold, uh, because it was several years later. Anthony Mary has now been reassigned to the court uh, at Denmark, and he's telling the story yet once again of how he was received by the United States president. He said that the president of the United States sat down and proceeded to toss a down-at-the-heel slipper into the air and catch it on the point of his foot. Now, Mary was further outraged by these small dinner parties that had you know, replaced the big levees, and that um, what he expected was what had been happening during the Adams and Washington administrations, in that as he was the ranking diplomat in Washington, he fully expected that the host, whether it was um, President Jefferson or Secretary of State Madison, would escort his wife to the table and both would be seated at some point placed toward the head of the table. But unbeknownst to Mary, Jefferson had introduced this idea of pell-mell seating, and some of you are familiar with that. You know, no place cards, just grab a seat, folks. Everybody find a place at the table. Well, Mary was outraged by this behavior, and again, he's reporting back to Lord Hawkesbury in London at how he, he and his wife now are being treated. Now, I know I've used this illustration before, so some of you are probably very familiar with this. Not only does it, I think, we show, does it show Jefferson at his Republican best, but one reason I use it here is because on the other end of all of this was James Monroe. It was in, if you remember, um, what, May 1st, they signed the, um, the Louisiana Purchase Treaty in Paris. Then Jefferson reassigns Monroe to the Court of St. James in London. And so he's already in London by the time the Marys arrive in late November, and all of this begins to happen uh, with Mary in Washington. And uh, he said that the coolness um, definitely increased. His dinner invitations were not accepted. At one dinner uh, to which he was invited, he was very deliberately seated at the, or he felt very deliberately seated at the end of the table. He said between representatives from two principalities that weren't as big as his Virginia farm. 
And then he wrote back to Secretary of State Madison, he said that he was not given the respect due to the office I held or to the government and country I represented. So I think we can see from this then that uh, while Jefferson is trying to exercise this idea and establish this idea of Republican egalitarianism, Monroe is on the other end and observing it from a little different angle as to what perhaps is going to be the most effective diplomatic protocol. Well, now Jefferson is defense. He said that our ministers with them submit to the laws of their society. Certainly he had had that experience when he was our uh, minister plenipotentiary to the court at Versailles. He had to adhere to dress codes, to what is expected at the court there. So then he goes on to say, so theirs with us must submit to ours. They plead the practices of my predecessors, and of course here he's referring to the Washington-Adams administrations. I have deemed it my duty to change some of their practices, and especially those which savored of anti-republicanism. Well now, the secretary at the British legation, and this is Sir um, Augustus John Foster, he kept some very um, marvelous and detailed journals through this time period, and he observed in his estimation that Jefferson affected to despise dress, but he added that Mr. Jefferson knew too well what he was about. He had lived in too good society in Paris, where he was employed as minister from the United States. Well, for whatever reasons, in the year following um, the, the Mary upheaval, uh, we do seem, Jefferson did seem to back off a bit. Uh, I was looking at uh, an account from a letter, it was by, uh, again, by the same senator, William Plumer, who talked about him being in his threadbare coat. Well, in a letter of December 1804, he wrote, he has improved much in the article of dress. He has laid aside the old slippers, red waistcoats, and soiled corduroy small clothes. This was more colloquial term for the knee breeches. And was dressed all in black with clean linen and powdered hair. Now, I'm not going to say that from there, that point forward, Jefferson always matched this description. You can still find some others of him in kind of his dishabillé, but um, at least this was Plummer's observation that he thought he saw an improvement here. If you're interested in learning more about the Mary Affair, check out The Revolution of 1800, Democracy, Race, and the New Republic, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2002, which includes an examination of the affair by Joyce Appleby, Professor Emerita at the University of Los Angeles, California. If you're interested in hearing more about some of the ways the founders shaped their own images, check out our streaming media archive at www.monticello.org streaming and look for talks by Gate Wilson, Cinder Stanton, and Joanne Freeman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>